Well, as we continue to work through the book of Galatians written by Paul, whose name was originally Saul before he was converted, we're going to use the word gospel a whole lot. Uh, We've used it a lot and we'll continue to use it a lot. And so I wanted to spend a few minutes explaining the word gospel. What does it mean and why is it so important? Uh, And you'll see why when we look at the text and that's exactly what... uh, is at the heart of what we're talking about in verses 11 through 24. But the word gospel is simply a Greek word that means good news. Um, it was, a, you know, just the good news and, and the joy that comes from good news. Now, that could have been originally any message of good news that brings joy. But in the Christian community and in your scriptures, the word gospel took on a unique connotation itself. That the message of good news that brings joy regarding Christ and the meaning of the Christ event. So as we read our scriptures and we read the the word that's printed in your text, gospel, it takes on the meaning of referring to who is Christ and what was it that he did and what is the significance of the, the Christ event. The Christ event meaning his life, his death, his burial, the resurrection. Why did he do that? What, what does it matter? How does that relate to sinners and their relationship to God? So when we talk about the gospel, the good news, we are talking about a particular understanding, a particular message of the meaning of the Christ event that has been passed down to us through our scriptures that were recorded by the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the Christ event who were inspired by God to explain the full significance and implications of the Christ event. You know, everyone says uh, they believe in Jesus, just about. Uh, Muslims believe in Jesus. They say he was a prophet, and so to a certain extent, they believe in Jesus. The Jews who crucified Jesus believed to a certain extent in Jesus. They believe he existed. They believe he claimed to be God. The uh, anybody today who says that Jesus saves me is believing in Jesus. But it's important to understand that there is an apostolic, that means the, a message that has been passed down by the apostles that, is, that we refer to as the gospel as a specific particular explanation of the meaning of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Who Jesus is... What he did and what is the implication of all of that? That's the gospel. In fact, Paul, the writer of Galatians in Romans 1.16 said this. Listen to what Paul says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, this gospel explanation, this good news message about Jesus is the power of God that brings salvation to those who believe. So yes, it's true to say Jesus saves me, certainly. But who? Who is Jesus? What do you mean he saved you? What did he do to save you? That's the gospel message. Understanding the the message of the apostles and the scriptures, the Christian message about Jesus, how he saves you, is why he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. And so, 
No wonder Paul in this message is so concerned today that we believe that his gospel message came as direct revelation from God himself and not something that was just merely tradition or passed down through man without any divine origination. And that's his point today. Look, listen to what he says in verses 11 through 24 of Galatians chapter 1. He said, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard, now he goes into his testimony, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace and was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then... Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us, is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Father, we need your help this morning. We believe that you have preserved this gospel message of good news that brings joy. This testimony of the apostles which has been preserved and written in scriptures for generations to study and know and understand the, the identity of Jesus and the meaning and significance of His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Lord, open hearts this morning to believe the gospel message about Jesus Christ. That we may all be rescued by Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So what we see, if you want to kind of outline of the text, is the first two verses, Paul states his thesis. If you're writing a research paper, you say, here's my thesis. This is what I'm going to argue for in this paper. Paul's thesis, his claim, is presented in verses 11 through 12, where he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me as not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by man, but I received it through a revelation 
of Jesus Christ. His thesis, his claim is this, that the gospel that we read Paul writing about came directly from God himself through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation literally just means an unveiling of the truth. A removal of things that are blinding from the truth. Paul is saying, God opened my eyes to see the truth of this message. I didn't get it taught it by the other apostles. I didn't consult with them. God came directly to me. And we read about that story in Acts on Saul. His name was Saul originally. And he tells the story of how he was persecuting the church, traveling down a road towards the town Damascus. And this amazing event happened. And Paul says, that is when God revealed this gospel message, which I preach and give my life to. That's when he revealed it to me. It did not come from man. It came from God by a revelation, a revealing, an external. It wasn't inward, internal, investigating and discovering a truth. It was from outside in, God revealing it to Saul and converting him and transforming him by this gospel message. And so that's his argument. That's his main thesis of these verses is to say, listen, this is of divine origin. Why is that so important? Because that's the only reason why the gospel message is the power of God to save those who believe. Because it is a divine message. It is one that carries the power and the authority of God in it. As we understand it clearly and believe and embrace Jesus, the object of that message, the way it's explained in that message, we are radically saved and transformed and rescued. And so he says, I want you to understand, this is divine. And then he tells his testimony. He gives us in the rest of the verses, 13 through 24, he gives us three evidences of his claim. Three evidences that his message, this gospel message about Jesus, is of divine origin and therefore must be believed. Not an option among many, but it is of God, therefore it must be believed. As he said last week, we looked at it, he said, if anyone preaches a message contrary to this message, if anyone else tells you a different version of the identity of Jesus and the meaning and significance of his life, his burial, his resurrection, then if it's anything different, it's anathema. It is, I don't care if it's an apostle, I don't care if it's an angel, I don't care if it's a prophet, I don't care who it is, it's a lie and it, it is wrong. And he says, this is of divine origin, therefore it must be believed. It is the dividing line, the standard of truth upon which all of us will be measured. Evidence number one, Paul's predisposition against the gospel. Evidence number one, that his gospel is of divine origin is from his testimony, the fact that Paul was predisposed against this very message that he now preaches. Listen to what he says in verses 13 through 16. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
He's saying, I, my life was defined by destroying this very message that I am now telling you. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him to the Gentiles. And let's stop there. The first evidence that Paul's gospel message about Jesus is of divine origin is Paul's predisposition against the very gospel message he's now preaching. Paul considered Jesus anathema. Paul considered Jesus, he was blaspheming as he shows up on the scene claiming to be God. And saying, the law is fulfilled in me, Jesus said. And Paul is enraged at this message. How dare you claim to be equal with God? How dare you say that you fulfill the law of Moses and you wipe it out like that? Anathema, crucify him and crucify anybody else who believes this and tries to spread this message. That's the Paul writing this gospel message. He says, I was zealous for my ancestral traditions. What his ancestral traditions had done is twisted the word of God, as we said last week. Let me, let me first explain the right understanding of your Bible, and then I will explain how the tradition was handed down to him. Very simply, Reader's Digest version. God comes to a man named Abraham, makes him two promises. You're barren, you and your wife can't have kids, but I'm making you two promises. Number one, you're going to have so many kids... For generations, they're going to become a nation of people. We refer to those people as the covenant people of God, Israel, Jews. That's, that's who we're talking about. So their very definition was, they came about because God made a promise to Abraham. They couldn't have children. God promised they became a people. Now, that's the seeds, plural, of Abraham, the children of Abraham. But then there was another promise. And he said, now, guess what? One of your children, there's a particular seed of Abraham, who will be the savior of the world. He will come, he will be the king who establishes God's earthly kingdom of righteousness. And so the people of God, Israel, became the people by sharing in this faith of Abraham. It says in Genesis 12 where that promise was made that Abraham believed God about his promise, about this seed of Abraham, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gospel message. It's the same gospel message for us. How are you made righteous? By believing God's promise about the seed of Abraham, period. We are made righteous by believing God's word about the Jewish Messiah. And then when I believe, I am declared, I am, it is credited to me as righteousness, just like Abraham, who existed. This is, the, this is the argument that Paul makes in Galatians. Who existed 430 years before the law was ever given to Moses. The law had nothing to do with being righteous with God. It was 430 years before the law ever came through Moses that God said, Abraham, you are righteous because you believe my promise to you about a seed who we know his name is Jesus. 
430 years later, the people of God who exist as God's righteous people because they believe God's promised word about the seed of Abraham, they exist because of that. They are saved. They are righteous because they trust and rest in God's promises about the seed of Abraham. God says, now, you still are jacked up people. And I've got to protect you from your own sinfulness. Even though you are the people of God, you need to be guarded against your own sin so you don't self-destruct. And you need to be guided by me. So he pulls Moses, he pulls the people out of, his, out of Egypt, he delivers them, he goes to Mount Sinai, he says, alright, here's ten commandments, here's a summary of my will to protect you from yourself and to guide you as a people, people who believe in the faith of right, uh, people who have faith in the seed of Abraham, my righteous people. And he gives them ten laws and they're breaking them as they speak. Clearly we need more guidance and protection than this. So he gives them, the priests, an enormous number of detailed laws, more sin, more laws, more sin, more laws. The laws had nothing to do with earning righteousness. The laws were protecting sinful people from their own sin and guiding God's people according to his ways. And then we get to Jesus and Jesus says, I am that promised seed to Abraham. I am the one who, when I die, my death will pay for your sinfulness once and for all. It's settled for good. And I am the one who fulfills the law. All the laws were waiting for me to come. All the laws pointed for me. You don't need the Mosaic law anymore because I have come and set you free. And Paul says, anathema. You are not God's Messiah. He's going to come as a conquering king. That's what his ancestral tradition had told him. And his ancestral tradition had told him, the laws make you right with God. And so what they did to the laws of Moses is turned them instead of a protection and a guidance and a guarding against sin, he turned them into a means of a ladder to try to climb it to, to be right with God. It, it twisted the whole plan. And they said, well, this is, this is hard. So let's, they kind of did like we see with our IRS code. Case by case would come in. Well, how do we handle this? And they would, they would adjust and they would comment and they would rephrase. And, and so by the time that, that we get to the New Testament with Jesus rising on the scene, they, the Pharisees had this complicated system of code of laws of what exactly is breaking the Sabbath. What exactly is this? And, and, and they had watered it down to the point where they said, now, I, I can keep this. I can do this and be made right with God because I'm keeping the law to be righteous with God, which was never the intent in the first place. And Jesus shows up and on the Sermon of the Mount says, you think you're righteous because you don't kill each other? Well, if you even get mad at somebody, you've already broken the law. You've missed the heart of the law. It was never meant to make you righteous. And so he just blows it up and they say, kill that man. He's destroying, destroying our teachings, our ancestral tradition. And so Paul is saying, I will. And I was doing a good job. And I was rising to the top of the class of Judaism and teaching ancestral tradition. And, and how the law is crucial and Jesus is not the Messiah. And I was going house to house, church to church, destroying these people. 
It tells us in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted the way, that's the Christian way, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Can you hear the cries of the children as Paul drug mother and father out of the household and beat them and threw them in prison and killed them? In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Luke says about Saul, who was Saul before his name was changed to Paul, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, proactively pursuing and investigating and seeking out followers of Christ to destroy them, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This is the man who now says, Jesus is the Messiah. Trust in him alone for righteousness. And he does away with the law. Why believe it's of divine origin? Because Paul was absolutely everything in his life predisposed him to be against this very gospel message. Number two, why believe it's of divine origin? Because Paul's independence from the apostles. Paul's predisposition against the gospel is number one. Paul's independence from the apostles is number two. We get this in verses 16 through 21. Look at the second half of verse 16. He says, after I was converted, after I got this incredible gospel conversion from Christ himself on the road to Damascus, verse 16, part 2, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem where the apostles are, to those who were apostles before me. But I went way away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later... I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter and stayed with them 15 days. I did not see the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, after this conversion experience, I did not go to Jerusalem where the other apostles were. I did not go and get my story straight and make sure we had the same gospel. He says, listen, I got this straight from God. I didn't need to hear from them. I knew what God told me. I went to Arabia and Damascus and for three years I was preaching this message and studying and understanding it and and sharing it. And then they heard and so they said, well, come be acquainted with us. So Peter calls them and they go to Jerusalem. It was only for 15 days and he says I wasn't there to get to know all the apostles gospel and, and consolidate it and conspire to make sure it's right he said I didn't even see the other apostles well I saw James his brother of Jesus but I'm telling you I'm not lying I didn't consolidate the gospel message I was independent of them that their gospel message is the same as my gospel message but it wasn't because we colluded it was the same message because it came from the same God If you've ever been a jury, in a jury like I was, where I was on a death penalty case that just was unbelievably challenging to to be in that position, when you're standing there hearing evidences and you're having to consider the testimony, these testimonies, you want to know something. You want to know, number one, that they were there and they saw it. 
And you want to know, number two, that these eyewitnesses have not colluded. They are independent of each other so that you know that when this person tells their version and they tell their version, they tell their version and they tell their version, there's a... It's not exactly the same in every detail. They're telling it each from their different angles of their vision of it, but there's a truthfulness that they all share. There's one message that comes out. In fact, if someone comes in with five different people, supposedly independent, and they tell exactly the same story, you go, oh, I can't trust this. They've, they've colluded, they've conspired to make sure that they're in agreement. And the Gospels in your Scriptures, in the, first, in the first part of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call those the Gospels because they each are telling you a different account of this same one Gospel message, the Christian message about the identity, the life, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the meaning of that and the significance of God and how He is all that the Old Testament has been pointing us to. And so there is a one message that is proclaimed by the testimony of the apostles that have been passed down to us, though it has different angles on it from their eyewitness perspectives, that is one true gospel testimonial witness that comes to us. And then Paul, the apostle Paul, wrote most of the rest of your New Testament. And he's saying, I saw them firsthand. I did not consult with these other guys. I was there. We were independent, though our message has similar truth in it. So what Paul is saying is, you can believe my gospel was or of, of divine origin because it was independent of the other apostles, though it does not disagree with the other apostles. Not only was Paul's predisposition against the gospel and his independence from the apostles, but we also see Paul's transformation by the gospel. The third evidence that his gospel is of divine origin is his transformation by the gospel. Notice up earlier when he was talking about the, his predisposition against the gospel... He says, but, in verse 15, when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. He says, I was adamantly, passionately against this gospel and then God did something amazing. He radically transformed my life. He says, there is this absolute inability in me to take any credit for choosing to share this gospel message with you. I, let me put it this way. I was in my mother's womb when God chose to make me a preacher of this gospel message. You think I wanted to preach this gospel message? I can't tell you any other way than to say, I was in my womb. In my womb, you think I was sitting there saying, I think I'll be a preacher of the gospel. This was God's doing. He says every aspect of this part of his testimony, he gives God credit. He says, God is the one who set me apart. God is the one who called me. God is the one who revealed Christ to me. Why? So that I would preach this gospel. You think it's of me? 
This is all God's doing in choosing to make me this messenger of this gospel that I was persecuting the church for. And then in verses 22, 23, and 24, he says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea. I had never stepped foot in there. Verse 23, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. In these verses, Saul has been radically transformed by this divine encounter with Christ Whereas he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. After this divine encounter, he was preaching the faith and God was being glorified in him. This certainly supports his claim of the divine origin of his message. Jared Clary, our student minister, is preaching, teaching the uh, students... Um, an apologetic series in the sense of helping them think for themselves, consider things that they believe before they go off to college so that when they go to college, it won't be the first time they thought, hey, not everybody believes this. And so he's asking them, why do you believe the word is God's word? Why do you think it has authority? Why do you believe it is truly the inspired word of God that has the authority in your life? And he said... As he let that sit, is it just because your parents believe it? Is that why? I mean, that's great. But is that the only, is that the limit to the reasons of your believing that the word of God is truly the word of God? And he let it sit in silence. I'm sure a quarter of them were asleep. The other quarter were, I'm not going to dare talk. And the other ones, I have no idea what he's talking about. And then one spoke up. Nope, that's not why I believe it. And Jared was like, okay, well, tell me. I don't believe just because my parents believe it. Well, why do you believe it? I believe it because I'm starting to read it. And it's changing my life. And he's like, that's awesome. The divine origin of the gospel shows itself as it radically transforms people's lives. If you will read the word of God, you will not believe how much it changes your life. And let me tell you, it's not like any other book. Paul was sincere. He was zealous. He was passionate about his Judaism. That Jesus is not what God's people need He is not the Messiah. The law is what we need. That's what he had been passed down by his ancestral tradition. And God said, wrong. And he rocked his world. And he said, let me tell you one message. You are made righteous only by the blood of Jesus Christ. You take that message to the very people you've been killing for believing it. I don't know what your tradition has handed down to you. I don't know who Jesus is in your family. And I don't care how zealous they have believed it. 
if it is any other message than Jesus' death on the cross pays the sin debt for you and his righteousness is given to you by faith. That's the only gospel message. And too many of us in this part of the the country have been passed down a tradition that says Jesus saves, but obedience earns righteousness too. And it doesn't. Jesus saves. Obedience is the grateful response of grace. We read our Bibles because we're so grateful to be saved and we want to know him. We, we share the gospel because that's what you do when you get the gospel. You repent of sin and you wage war against sin, not because you need God to love you again and to be okay with God again, but because his blood covers even that sin. And it's amazing grace that motivates you. It's a life that rescues you from guilt. Jesus, here's good news. Jesus rescues you from guilt. Jesus rescues you from condemnation. Jesus rescues you from slavery to earning God's righteousness. Jesus rescues you from the slavery of religion that says if you go to church enough, he'll love you. Jesus rescues you from living out of guilt for your failures last night. Jesus rescues you from your enslavement to finding happiness and joy in anything less than Jesus. Jesus rescues you and sets you free because he is all you need. You don't have to hold on to your possessions. Because he is your meaning and your self esteem and your declaration of righteousness, you don't have to prove yourself to others. Because he is all your worth and value when you get the gospel, you give yourself away freely, happily, joyfully, sacrificially. Not because you think you got to or he's going to be mad at you. That is a radically different life. And that's good news. That's what Paul says. Is from God himself. Despite what anyone's ever told you. Let's pray together. Father, help us be united around this beautiful, true message about Jesus, who he is, the promised seed of Abraham, the God-man. What he did, lived the perfect life, displaying who he was, perfect life of faith, gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty that our sin deserved to be paid, absorbing, satisfying the wrath of God as nothing else could rose from the grave, demonstrating his power over death, his victory over sin, 
the truthfulness of his claim as being the God-man, ascending to heaven, waiting for the right time to come back victoriously as a conquering king to establish your kingdom of righteousness on this earth, judging those who are opposed to him and establishing with him, reigning and ruling with those who worship him. Help us to believe and be saved. No matter what tradition has been passed down to us. Help us as believers to live in that gospel message concerning Jesus daily. To wake up every day reminding our own hearts of the identity that we have in Christ as righteous saints. Reallocating the grace of God, reminding ourselves that He is our greatest treasure, to live for Him, freeing us to give our lives away to others. Reminding ourselves that the good deeds that we want to do are done because of who we are in Christ and out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. The repentance away from sin and towards Christ and His Word and His people and His glory. That's what you do when you get the gospel. Help us to grasp the realities of the Holy Spirit of God because He paid the price once and for all on the cross for sin as the high priest who sat down after he completed his work no longer needing to continually die again and again for our sins it's a completed work and so help us to know that the spirit of God now can dwell within us we become the dwelling place of God not some building out there but the people of God have God in their midst And may that unite us so much that it transcends any human barrier, any any idea of race or religion or money or social class, anything, that it transcends all those things and it unites us into one people, one glorious, redeemed, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ people. We don't judge each other. We just sit amazed that we are saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, tonight as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may we rejoice these truths. May we proclaim them again and again, preaching that gospel to ourselves. And may these gospel realities, truths about what Jesus does for us through his blood, may they motivate us and transform us and send us out as messengers of hope and light to our neighbors and to the nations. Oh God, thank you for the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. And it's to your glory we sing.